Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Welcome to Three, a show about Federer, Nadal, and Djokovic and part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm Gil Gross with Joel Drucker and Amy Lundy. Congratulations to Novak Djokovic on major title number 18, Australian Open title number nine. It went down about an hour ago. This is our first kind of reaction. We're going to have a powwow about that match and answer some central questions uh, as the big three dominance continues and Djokovic winning on uh, his his home soil almost, his second home at least uh, in Melbourne. But it, it was a straight set victory, way more straightforward than I expected. And I, I think we're all in agreement with uh, being a little bit surprised at how simple that was for Djokovic, right, Joel? Yeah, no question. I mean, I think we all think it was going to be extremely competitive. I mean, the rivalry, uh, Medvedev had, had beat him three times and uh, – such a good player and seemed to pose all sorts of questions in his game. And, uh, you know, Novak, we knew was going to be terrific and focused, but it yeah, turned out to be a lot less competitive than we thought. I think that the way Djokovic was serving this entire tournament um, pretty much tipped off the way that it was going to go. If you really sat down and looked at it, and uh, I did write a piece as I teased on the last show that the, Slider out wide in the deuce court was working really well for Djokovic. He, he rode that. And then I noticed on the U.S. broadcast on ESPN that they mentioned, uh, Darren Cahill mentioned that Djokovic had been working on that exact serve in practice the day of the match, today. So um, it, that was clearly a horse that he rode. And um, if you really looked at how Djokovic served throughout the tournament, uh, he was going to be pretty unstoppable. You know, I wonder, Amy uh, and Gil, if uh, Gil and I were talking about this, the, the Goran Ivanisevic influence. And mm -hmm. while I don't necessarily think coaching is autobiography, I do see that he has a lefty coach. And the lefties naturally learn the slider because it goes wide in the ad court. They taught mm -hmm. that instantly. So I wonder if he gave him some, you know, uh, toss ball corner management skills about what that serve does and how you integrate it. Though, of course, Gil, you have some other thoughts about, uh, about Novak's serve too. We're seeing the pathway to longevity being paved before our eyes for Novak Djokovic. His first serve average was 120 miles per hour in this match, which is a, an exceptional number. But uh, look at the, the singles ace leaderboard for this tournament. Sure, Djokovic plays more matches. He played seven matches which only Daniil Medvedev can say, but Novak Djokovic led this tournament in aces. He mm -hmm. hit 103 aces. Look at the names under him. Alexander Zverev, Milos Raonic, Daniil Medvedev, 6-6. Six, six, Nick Kyrgios. 6-6. Six, six, six. Kyrgios is there. Uh, like, are you kidding me? Imagine being Rafael Nadal and looking at, at that. Look, Nadal isn't going to shy away from or, or be afraid of, of any metric, but that is scary for Djokovic's rivals. He is making that next step in his serving. He has made adjustments on uh, his service motion with Goran. Uh, 
Novak has tweaked his second serve, how he handles that, his approach to it. Um, it just goes to show you that no matter how old you are, you can change things in your game and stay current. And uh, I think you're spot on that this is his path to longevity. And I think it goes to this point of location in serving is more than likely much more important and effective than speed. Well, obviously, right, speed with the location, and then you set up your plus one combinations. And again, Novak, you talk about serving, and it's interesting about numbers. One of my favorite numbers in tennis remains the scoring system. So here's Novak serving. He's up two sets to love. He's up 4-2, but now it's 15-30. So the way tennis works is that if Medvedev wins that point and then breaks and he's back on serve, it doesn't mean the entire match turns, but certain parts of the match turn. And we all know how significant that, that's for the scoring system. I mean, it's one of the most genius diabolical yes. things ever. But what does Novak come up with at 1530? He comes up with a really good serve. And then he plays at 30 all. He hits uh, has some great depth. And then he wins a 23 ball rally. Three points shows those parts of his genius. I mean, yeah, three. A match about Novak, Novak, and Novak. I mean, it's right. incredible how well, well he played. Yeah, and on the Daniil Medvedev serve, thought this was a really, really impressive Novak Djokovic uh, returning performance. And mm-hmm. uh, let's go with uh, with some more stats. Why not? Um, if you look at Medvedev's first serve points, one percentage in the tournament, 78, 86, 77, 78, 80, 88 against Stefano Tsitsipas, 69%, wow. a, a massive dip um, in Medvedev's efficiency on first serve. And not only was, was Novak, by the way, punishing the second serve as well, but the biggest difference between Djokovic and Medvedev for me was how well Djokovic played behind his first serve. The, the baseline aggression is far superior to Medvedev's. And technically that's where I saw the biggest gap. Medvedev is lost on the baseline right now against uh, an elite player like Djokovic. He was second guessing his uh, position after he served his plus one position. He was second guessing his return position. He was, um, you know, caught off guard, uh, balls at his feet um, in his own way. Uh, he, Medvedev to me did not have a strategy. He, he didn't have like a, a plan to play Djokovic and Djokovic had a picture perfect TikTok strategy against Medvedev. You're well, talking about a guy in Medvedev who had, had come into the match winning 20 straight matches. So it was, you know, f- for him to look as lost as he did. I mean, it's a huge kind of shock to the system. Well, the deep middle, the deep middle balls that Novak hit were very effective because there's a whole... You know, Medvedev is an interesting mix of things. And he, it is funny. And he's kind of, he, he enjoys using pace. He enjoys coming after him. It's like, you could see that the Tsitsipis match works for him because Tsitsipis wants to hit balls into corners and he wants to create things. And Medvedev wants to kind of counter create. Not necessarily, you know, Amy and I were talking the other day among ourselves about what a counter puncher is. And I don't think of Medvedev as a counter puncher, but he likes to, you know, it reminds me, if I may, Radwenska was a little bit like a player like that too. She liked to hit ball, work off of you to then hit you with what you had thrown to her from the corners. And I always thought if I was coaching someone to play her, I'd say, I just hit a lot of balls high 
deep down the middle to her forehand. And in a way, Novak kind of did that. I mean, you see how he, in, in his way, eventually broke down a lot of the Medvedev forehand because the forehand is not as formidable a shot until Medvedev starts to look, he looked kind of lost. He couldn't quite react to Novak's. The depth, I mean, a teacher told me it's depth solves all. Yeah, depth kills. You've heard the expression speed kills, talking about like on the roads, driving, depth kills in tennis. Well, and that's, that's what really separates the great, not the great players, but also even the pros. To, to bring it down to the civilian world, what, hit, hit with a pro and watch how many balls they can hit within a foot of the baseline. And then Novak is probably the best ever at that. Mm -hmm. And it's one of the things when people, you know, when some people say like, uh, I don't see what Novak does great. You know, he just does everything pretty well. It's like, well, you realize he's hitting the ball on the baseline every time. And, and to the naked eye, it might not be quite as flashy as some of the things Roger Federer does, but in terms of effectiveness and level of difficulty, it's, it's right there. Um, he applies pressure. He's applying pressure. And it's like, if someone hits the ball, once a few inches inside your baseline, well, that's kind of interesting. Twice, wow, pretty good. Three times, four times. Do I have the right to see a lawyer? I mean, that's what <laughs> made Chris Everett so great. And yeah. Novak, in a lot of ways, reminds me of her in a, in a different era, different physicality, but still just applying pressure. And, and I think Medvedev felt helpless after a while. Well, also, we talk about Medvedev as a, a Radvanska-like player. I love that comparison. And he likes to dig in and play long rallies. And after he serves big, he plays small. It's what you uh, texted to, to Amy and I uh, the other day, Joel. But the rallies were not on a consistent basis, the long, grueling rallies that we've sometimes seen when these two have met in the past, ATP Cup, um, Australian Open uh, 2019, you know, these were, these were shorter rallies. And I, I think that was the most surprising thing about the match other than the, the straightforwardness of the match was just, it wasn't quite as physical as I thought it would be. I think Novak, I mean, I'm just going to be very blunt here and I'm sorry, Medvedev fans, but <laughs> I think Novak got Medvedev to quit in the match um, somewhere in the second set might've been after that break. And uh, he just, he never, you know, at that point, he was just stepping on him. Um, but you're right. Medvedev is like a tale of two players, Joel. He's got the big serve and then he um, is a grinder. But the problem was he was getting frustrated that he wasn't getting enough easier free points on his serve. And then he wasn't willing to grind. Well, so I mean, it's... it's, it's I'm mean, also this grinder notion. It's I think he's not, I don't think it's not a grinder in the um, David Ferrer Gil Gross sense. He's more of a grinder in the clever. You know, then he wants to create, right? He wants to he wants to disrupt. He doesn't want to just be steady. He wants to he wants to do something down the line and roll one and kind of do different things because I don't think of him as a grinder in the well you can't grind with that forehand I mean <laughs> that no, right. Gil exactly. and I knew no. Gil and I knew before the match that the forehand was going to be vulnerable and I have not seen the stats on the forehand specifically but he made a ton of errors Novak knew I'll it. Get him. he went but, he went to the forehand all day absolutely right but see I think I think for Medvedev he wants to kind of counter he wants to counter and then initiates and do things to, to kind of hurt you and, and disrupt. 
But my point was he wasn't even willing to get to the disruption phase on his serve. It's like you could see the the uh, frustration on his face. Greatest returner in the world just returned the best serve I can give. Now what do I do? Totally right. Because Novak, you're absolutely right. Because Novak was hitting deep and sustained and, and say, yeah, and I know, and I know that foreign's a little weaker, son. So I'm going to poke at it some and, and yeah. it's going to be, and I'm hitting deep, um, deep, deep, fairly flat, hard drives. You're, you, it, so it's almost mm-hmm. like he was saying to Medvedev, don't, don't try that with me. I know how, yeah, you think you're clever. This is about being clever. This is about being effective. And I think as we continue to assess the Novak genius, you just see how effective is it battening down the hatches. No, you're not going to do that against me. Don't try that. And this, is, this isn't just a, a two out of three set on some carpet or some other thing. This is best of five. We're going to be here a long time. And if you, you can come up with that stuff against me for four hours, have at it. But I, I mean, and the fitness of Novak, I mean, it's just so, so impressive in all categories. Medvedev made 14 unforced errors on the forehand to nine winners. Novak hit eight winners on the forehand to just three unforced errors the entire match. So uh, what a what a disparity there. And Djokovic certainly broke down Medvedev's forehand side. What I really think happened is, is Novak made Daniil's legs burn a lot early on, yeah. moved them around a ton, and really played at a high level offensively. And then, you know, to me, that that made Medvedev fearful of the best of five format. You know, he, he, I think he realized I can't do this for as long as I might need to. That's where you started to see him getting impatient, going bigger early in points and making those errors. It was only this tournament, correct guys, where Medvedev won his first five set match. That's right. So he'd been 0-6 prior in five setters and you also see, so you, I think you're onto something, Amy, is that Medvedev starts to realize that the second set, this is my chance. And Novak was just so fit and so focused. And they also, I think there's a connection between technique and fitness. In other words, the better, yes. the more yes. efficient the shot, the, the, less it get, the less it drains you know, your, your reserve. And so that's yeah. where Novak, the, the combination of his technique and his fitness is lethal. I mean, his ability to play long match after long match and then the work he puts in and his fitness and his training, just incredible. That's, you know, that's a great point because I was watching a replay of a Medvedev forehand right in the middle of the court. It was like a short ball put away kind of forehand. And I, I can't even remember if it was one that he netted or it was it, he hit it for a winner. But what I was watching was he, the lack of kinetic chain um, and the um, strange air that he got and he was in this contorted position, you never see that with Djokovic. It's a complete efficiency of energy and output. And, um, you know, if you want to study someone's game and copy it because you want to play tennis forever, look at Novak. Right. Well, Medvedev's unorthodox and you can't really teach what he does. He's one of the only players on tour that I, that I see that actually finishes over his left ear, like the kind of, uh, you know, that, that really classical, like what you tell your, your four-year-old to first hit a forehand. High elbow. Right. Exactly. (laughs) When you're teaching like low to high follow through, like that's Medvedev's finish. 
Uh, but I think the, the greater point, the larger point is that that forehand that you're talking about, Amy, in the middle of the court, uh, maybe with not a lot of pace on it, which Medvedev actually likes to use the pace, that forehand is a layup for Djokovic. Right. It's a long two for Medvedev. You know, when, when he's trying to finish that forehand and to do damage early, it, it's not a given that he can do that. And when you take a great returner like Djokovic, who's going to put balls deep in the court um, and give Medvedev that shot and then defend behind his return, it's just, there's not going to be short points for Daniil Medvedev. And he seemed kind of desperate for them and they weren't there. It'd be interesting for someone like Sitsipas who lost to Novak in the semis of the French, who lost to uh, Medvedev in the semis of Australia, who's a great player, for him to kind of study that and see how Novak goes about breaking people down because he's so, you know, he's not trying to be a shot maker as such. I mean, it's a really interesting thing. There's some really interesting things going on that you see in these matches. What constitutes offense? What's defense? What's bigger than both those terms? I mean, in certain ways in tennis, those terms break down because the transition is so quick. It's not quite like you're, it's not quite like basketball or football where it's mm-hmm. vivid, what's offense and defense. So there's such a, a thing going on there. I think there's some other language that we can get at. Novak, Novak really helps us see that of all our three, I think Novak helps us see that offense and defense aren't quite as obvious. I think with Federer Nadal, you're more aware of what's offense and what's defense a little bit more, whether it's Rafa running like gangbusters and suddenly it's offense because there's such a, such a dynamic quality the way he brought And Novak is just so efficient. So you just, it's not, where's, where's the pressure coming from? It's interesting. Yeah. I think that's part partially uh, Spanish way for, for Nadal where it's supposed to be kind of very distinct when, you know, shot selection, offense, defense, but um Novak does, I think, I think he thrives in kind of an in-between state. Would you yeah, agree? He very much does. I yeah. would agree with that. I think what he likes to do, it's, it's how do I go about, what, is, what does it mean to apply pressure? And I think it's the whole way of how you break up someone's game and how you do that. I think our, and Novak is the, the um, discipline of his shots again and again and again, the sustained depth and the way, and, but eventually he feels kind of smothered I mean, I think that's what Medvedev, don't you think that, Amy, that Medvedev felt? Yeah, kind of- I mean, I, I'm thinking now of, of the drills that you do when you're, you're first learning um, tennis about identifying balls as offense, defense, neutral. And Novak, his neutral shot is actually something more than neutral. It's, it's, not, it's not full-on offense, you know, 100%. And it's, it's not 50% neutral and he's mastered, he's living in that 75% or 65% zone. And uh, that's just really uncomfortable for an opponent. The 80% ball that Gail Monfils never had. Right. And that's his bread and butter though. His 80% is other people's 50%. And it may not be pace. We may be talking about angle or, or um, spin or what have you. Well, yeah. with Novak, it's about, it's about depth. It's about balance. And I think you're so right that he's the one that you'd say, here, this is, watch, watch this guy play. Watch how Remember this- when we talked about height, we did that show about height and how, you know, what is like the perfect height, too short, too tall. 
this match really drove home to me that a 6'6 guy in Medvedev looked, his levers looked so unwieldy when he was stretched out wide and, and then having to cover the court back and forth because Novak was running him side to side on certain points. Um, and, and, you know, he's just he's just carrying more mass around the court. And that's probably why his legs started to burn very early in the match. Well, that's interesting. We'll see. We'll have to see though, if someone six, six can hit the ball, can hit the ball as smooth as Novak. I mean, for example, at times Zverev has given indications that he might be able to, Mm -hmm. but but yeah, it's interesting to see about height and tennis, height and technique. Uh, that's that's an interesting thought as as the game moves forward yeah and the one you know if you're talking about heir appearance I guess the one that is in that sweet spot of height that Novak Rafa and Roger all are I guess is team right but it's a different it's a different configuration when you play with a one with a one-hander the different series of things you're trying to accomplish different ways you're built going about building points because I don't Federer has a one-hander though Better too, but I don't see team. I don't. I don't see team. If team plays Medvedev, I don't see him saying, "Okay, I'm going to take my one-handed backhand. I'm going to hit it deep and hard down the middle to your forehand again and again." Because the one-handed backhand isn't as intended to. It doesn't work that way as much against the two-hander. It doesn't work that way. There's ways that a Medvedev could take advantage of a team one-hander in a way he can't versus a Novak two-hander. I mean, the two-hander has so much going for it. In so many ways, the one-hander is two, but the one-hander is, is, is uh, for example, one-hander versus a two-hander in rallies, uh, not so good for long, long rallies. Speaking of backhands, though, there was a major late in the match, Gil, you probably know, it was like a backhand-to-backhand battle, yeah, a the 30 long rally, and Novak got him. No, it was I, it's late. To me, to me was, that just says, uh, hi, I still have the most elite backhand in the world. That was 4-2, 40-30. Okay. Okay. That was that three-point sequence in the 4-2 game from the 15-30, the really good serve, the incredibly deep backhand that pretty much skipped off the line. And then and then now that Novak has the game points, he's, okay, okay, mine to yours. But, and I think a two-hander versus a two-hander, particularly when it's ones like Novak's, that's great. I don't think, um, I don't think for example, team wants that rally. But we were, I was just talking about a height. I was talking about the, the sweet spot of height, how our, our three, our big three have cl- very close to the same height. And we had done that show on, you know, are the really tall players like Medvedev going to start taking over the sport? And I saw Medvedev's height and his, his really his gangliness, his unwieldiness. I saw that as the liability in this match. Yeah. I'm 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 interested in the endurance long term for Medvedev, but I I think his height is such an asset because he does move well, covers well, and he serves big like a six foot six player. Uh, let's get to the injury. We we did a podcast earlier this week. Novak was hurt, and and now he lifts the trophy. We'll zoom out, talk big picture after the break. 
Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. We recorded a midweek podcast after Djokovic's Taylor Fritz five-set win where it it really did look like he might retire from the tournament. And I think perhaps if he wasn't up two sets to love, he actually would have. And then we saw it round by round by round just get better and better. I feel like part of the the, the legacy of of this Australian Open title for Djokovic is going to be that you know, after the, the unfortunate event at the U S open and some of the, the recent kind of struggles that, or, or missed opportunities at majors he's had, you know, this was almost another one. And he, he really escaped that, that fate and fought through the injury. He did use the word tear immediately after that Fritz match. And now we're hearing unconfirmed reports that He's saying that the MRI did reveal a small tear. I mean, look, guys, if that's the case, what he just did to Medvedev, this is like, you know, Michael Jordan, 1997 NBA Finals, the sick game. Um, Medvedev should have taken advantage of this. I mean, um, but that's just an incredible dominating effort by Djokovic, if that's really the case. But it clearly wasn't affecting him. At, at a certain point. Yeah, I mean, I think as we saw throughout the tournament, as the tournament went on, he seemed pretty well unhindered, pretty well fit, I think. And so we just don't know, and we never will know the extent of what the tear was, if it was a, if it was a this tear or that tear, or how much it was affecting him and what that means. I mean, that's, in tennis, it's always tricky to understand these injuries. I mean, everything is managed so privately. It's different than, let's say, the team sports where we tend to learn about these things more. Well, he did um, heap praise on Uli, his physio after the match. And I just said to Gil, uh, I want Uli after every match. <laughs> I thought you were talking about, you want Federer's person too. We'll have them both. Right? Well, that's, that's for the training, Pierre. And that's for the pre-match. Yeah. Yeah. Those people, those guys, I think, uh, are so important. And I think that's the hidden secret weapon of our three are these physios and these trainers, more so in some ways than the coach. The coach knows tennis, the player knows tennis, the coach knows certain things, the coach helps with serves, the coach some tactics, but boy, keeping that body and fresh, that's important. You'll see that, Gil, as you get older. Yeah, and and Joel, when did uh, physios I mean, play, when did players first start traveling with with physios? Was this forever or? The, you mean the personal physio? Yeah. Uh, Andy Roddick hired Doug Spreen, an ATP trainer. Um, Agassi had Gil Reyes as a, as a trainer fitness person when they could afford to. I mean, that became the thing. I mean, for years, they're ATP trainers. Bill Norris, a good friend of mine, was the, the trainer of the moment, the iconic trainer for 40 years, the ATP and he worked on a lot of players' bodies, but he wasn't traveling full-time with them. So Roddick yeah. hires Doug Spreen from the ATP, come in-house with me. 
Well, not everybody can afford to do that. And, and that really is, you know, when we talk about the um, rich getting richer and the, you know, once you crack that elite, um, it's hard for the people below that to get up. And this is one of the disparities that, um, you know, the people beneath are just going to have to use the physio that is the staff physio that's working on everybody else. Yeah, well, that's, absolutely. So this becomes the question of, uh, yeah, you talked about amenities, but it's not just amenities. We're talking about resources, but I don't know. So, okay, so Novak is leading this Players Association. How does he wish to do that? I mean, Nadal talked also in his press conference about protecting lower-ranked players, yeah. about how as around the pandemic. So there's some interesting things how the pandemic has kind of like torn open some of the economic infrastructure aspects of tennis, of who has what and who has resources and who has private jets and who has things. So it's going to be interesting to see how that continues to play out. But no question for our, for our three, the ability to have the biggest team possible to help you with as much as possible really is really helpful. Yeah, we'll we'll try not to get down that that rabbit hole uh, right now. Although I'm sure we we will be doing it in the near future. Plenty of time for that. Uh, yes, uh, Medvedev did have some some really nice comments though about how when he was ranked 500 and Djokovic practiced with him and uh, Novak was talking to him and wasn't big leaguing him or big timing him at all. And uh, Daniil appreciated that. That was shared after the match. I thought that was nice. Um, but uh, at the end of the day, uh, it was uh, still in the runners-up speech. And uh, shout out to Preston on Twitter, uh, giving us, feeding us this stat. Uh, Novak Djokovic now um, leads major hardcourt titles with 12. Rafa on clay with 13 and Roger on grass with eight. So on their favorite surfaces, they now all reign supreme. And um, it's interesting. Medvedev is just... In this group of players trying to poke through, poke through, poke through, you know, it, be, before them, it was Dimitrov, Raonic, and Nishikori. And now it's Medvedev and Tsitsipas and Zverev and Dominic Team, who won the U.S. Open without having to go through any of the three. But uh, this is, again, they are fended off. They are fended off by the three. And it's now 15 of the last 16 majors won by our three. So think about this. Uh, Tsitsipas is born in 1998. Medvedev is 25 years old. So is the person who's going to topple some of these guys at a major someone born in the 2000s? And these guys are born in the 80s. I mean, that's just amazing. Here's Novak born in 1987, Nadal 86, Federer 81. So the person who beats them, let's say who beats them both at a major next. I mean, Del Potro did it when he won the 2009 U.S. Open but that seems so long ago. And so who's so the person who's gonna be two of these guys at the same major, will that person have been born in the 2000s or will it be one of these ones? Has it finally come down to the Medvedev? Um, Medvedev so close to beating Nadal, team so close to beating uh, Novak at the Australian a year ago, but now Novak's all right, nope, I'm, I got this, sorry you guys, go away. And, right. at, and Nadal winning the French without the loss of a set. Let's let's try to be like analytical about this though, right? Because obviously they're they're the best. But we we've seen in the Masters 1000s events and some of the best of three tournaments, we 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 have seen the big three go down at the hands of some of these guys. Medvedev had won three of his last four meetings with Novak Djokovic, and now it's a it's a major. It's it's best of five. 
everyone's well-rested, everyone's highly motivated, and you see that gap reemerge. And those are the three factors I can think of. Motivation, rest, and best of five. Like what's most significant out of, out of those three? And uh, but the Gil, the thing is that if Djokovic, Federer, and Nadal wanted to put all their eggs in the Masters 1000 basket and win that, they could do that. They have managed their schedule and their calendar and their bodies to such precision that the eggs that they want to put in their basket are the Grand Slams. And um, so it's like they can choose to do whatever they want to do. And, and the, it's not that you know the, the Grand Slams are just sort of something that they win by happenstance. Um, this is what they have chosen. Well, but it's these are the tent poles of the sport. We know that these are the big yes. the things where you make your name. And I think also, I think to your question, Gil, I think it's best of five because I think the way tennis works, I've seen enough tennis, talked to enough pros to know, even, even at, at our recreation level, I think anyone can play 1.7 pretty good sets against anyone. In other words, 1.7 good sets. And then you kind of like run out the clock and you win, and there it is. You've beaten Rafael Nadal two and five in Barcelona, whatever. Barcelona, two out of three sets, even on clay. Mm-hmm. Three, three sets. I mean, have you ever? Have either of you guys ever played um, five sets of singles at a shot? No. Ever that? I did that twice when I was a teenager, and I'll tell you, it's a really interesting process because they're guaranteed momentum shifts. See, two out of three, there might not be any shift of anything. So, so here's where we differ, Joel. You're saying that uh, the thing that, that really makes these guys great is the best of five format. And no. I'm saying, no, if, if it were best of three, they'd still be well, racking if you up. Said it was, if you said it was, then I'd agree with you. But the fact that it isn't and the daunting, that fact that the slams, the significance of the slams and because they're best of five, like if the slams were two out of three, or we decided that history was the master series, I see your point about skill, yeah. but it's not. And the tennis reputation is built on winning majors and also the duration of a tennis match of like, look again, and I think you brought it out earlier, Gil, Medvedev and the five setter. You're a little daunted by that. This guy's still one in six in five setters. And, and it's, it's physical, it's mental, it's emotional, it's tactical. You start going out there. I mean, it's like a, I don't, I haven't run a 10 Ks in marathons and the diff, those kind of things and, and running that kind of thing. I agree with you all. I see your point, Amy, totally. That if, if we define tennis by two out of threes and that was the majors two, yeah, these guys are still pretty darn skilled, but yeah, I mean, look at, look at today's match. Um, if it's best of three, who wins? No, no. See, I don't, I, I, I don't see. It's I don't look at three, it like that though. It's best of three. It's played differently. Yeah, it's a different. Set. The, the the format is not what makes these guys great. I no, no, will I, I will die on that hill. No, it's not I, I, the best of five that has propped these guys up. No, to no, great. it's not. But they I'm, would they would win the same that they have. Well, they have. They've won Masters. They've won, they've still taken the Masters thousands. That proves it. But my point is that that what separates them even more is the best of five. They're 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 at least somewhat more vulnerable in two out of three and people will get two out of three. They've, they've dominated the master's thousands also. So right. your point is there, but I think the best of five format 
reveals, like for example, it reveals the gap, like a guy like Medvedev sees, wow, wow, this is a whole other level of everything. And I don't think if it's two out of three, Novak wins the match five and two, because again, like I said, it's then played differently. They each go about playing it differently. They prepare differently. But I think guys like, it's just like when someone tries to beat Nadal on clay, like when someone like a, a Schwartzman makes an effort or a, it's just the three out of five set format will favor the better player even more because the length of the match and the, right. the ups and the downs. Well, I mean, look, this is, uh, this is something that I think anyone can appreciate. The, the larger the sample size is, the less variation you get. So, uh, you know, if we made a tennis match one point, well, then Djokovic might only have a 55, 60% win rate. But over the course of a match, when the sample size becomes really, really, really wide, uh, you the obviously- The cream rises. Yes, you right. eliminate. I mean, that's- But but, but then more specifically to, to this match, Medvedev, if, if this were a best of three match, he'd be willing to do more running. I think it, it changes the match. I just think that- the the fact that these guys are uh, peaking in grand slams, for, forget the best of five for a second, or, or just put it aside. Sure. Uh, the reason that they're doing so well in grand slams is by design. They have prepared to do well in grand slams because they want to. If you suddenly said uh, the Masters 1000s are much more important than the grand slams, the grand slams are just some silly thing. And you have to win the Masters 1000 to cement your greatness. They would go out and win every single one of them. That was my point. I would agree with that. I agree. I agree. All the players, all the players point towards slams. It's just that these guys, this is the interesting thing about the the experience aspect too. It's like these guys have pointed themselves to them. Everybody points themselves, but these guys have done better at them. So they know how to do that. It's like, I I said this about uh, on the first day of the tournament, I wrote something about, uh, Novak and home court advantage. And the neat thing about him in Australia, like Rafa in Paris, like Roger, the great degree in Wimbledon, the, I, don't, I don't have to question any of my rituals. All my superstitions work, my meals, my walking, my physio, my walks through the Novak likes to spend time in the Melbourne Botanical Garden. You know, everything is kind of like home sweet home for me here, or at least I think it is. And then if you think it is, then it is. And so there's this whole, it'll be interesting to see as the years continue, what this 15, possibly 20 year period of excellence by these three, how that, how that plays out, particularly in this era of um, surface homogenous qualities. You know, the surfaces are now it, are, are more the same than they ever were, than they used to be many years ago. So anyway, Gil, you're saying? Sure, well, I mean, I think, I think the, they obviously do literally schedule their years around peaking physically for the, the two weeks that they need to play a major. So in that case, it's, you know, Amy is a hundred percent dead on. And then it's also just a, a level of compete that is, is hard to generate artificially. And I, mm-hmm. I think about the, when these two played at the ATP finals um, last year, the first seven games of that match were unbelievably grueling, really incredible tennis. And I think, you know, let's be honest. I think Novak said, this is too hard. I'm not enjoying this. I don't need this. And he, and Medvedev won six, three, six, three. I just don't think Djokovic was willing to dig in and do the suffering there. And 
if it were the Australian Open final, yeah, he's going to do it. And that's just, that's just motivation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? Because the ATP finals is a great event. It's, it's colorful. It's got all the big names. It's um, fun. It was, the, it was the round robin, by the way. So was Novak playing, I was no, Novak wasn't playing for any kind of positioning at that time. Right. Like you're a number one. No, Vienna had accomplished that for him. So you're right. Well, you're so right. Yeah. Well, nothing. Let's not, let's not kill ourselves at the end of a long year here. You know, it, even if he's not saying that consciously, it could be subconscious. Um, this is where it matters. What he did today. This is what matters. Well, the ATP finals, like I've, I've always said this, um, Super Bowl or All-Star game. Yeah, it's neither. It's something different. It's it's something different. It's not an all-star game that has very little meaning. And it's not a Super Bowl, which is the end-all be-all. So it's something in between. But the round-robin format also, that's the the neat part of that event. It's like you, you, you actually do live twice. So it's like, okay, so I can beat me in the round robin. I make it to the semis. Um, I mean, there's the, the ATV finals is filled over 50 years with people pragmatically things happen and they can still end up winning the tournaments. And, and it depends on which stage of your career, like 12 years ago, winning that would have meant a lot to Novak mm-hmm. as it did to Tsitsipas, as it did to Medvedev. So it's all where these things matter in your arc. And so again, so here's Novak today playing his 28th Grand Slam final and Medvedev playing his second. And, and that really is where there's no substitute for experience. I mean, oh yeah. And I'm, I'm glad we hit that because that's one thing that we didn't, we didn't talk about much, but yes, the, the mental advantages of having won it eight times were really apparent. Let, let's end on this question. 2019 Australian open final Novak. Again, it's a match that I think people are just buckling up for an epic and then Djokovic yeah. was like no epic no no this is going to be very easy and uh, it happened again same thing with the 2020 French Open right yeah, it's right, in reverse right. yes so maybe this is a silly question I don't know but but which performance was more impressive uh AO 19 or AO 21 I'd say 19 because of the opponents yeah, yeah. I'd say 19 I, and it's interesting that you mentioned 19 I was in Australia that year and you're so right. And my ritual there goes that it's Sunday night final, Monday morning, departure to the airport, Monday morning, leave to the airport about 8, 8.30 a.m. And so I did this whole thing that I usually do Sunday morning, pre-pack, get everything ready. It's going to be a final. There's going to be work to do. It's, and the last time when they played in the finals, it was six hours. It ended at 1.40 in the morning. So I was all set to pretty much not sleep Sunday night. Or, or barely like sleep in my airport clothes. And so, wait, Novak. And, and I'm pretty sure that men's final was shorter than the prior night's women's final. That he beat Nadal faster than Osaka beat Kvitova. So it's, you're right. It's just, so I think this effort, it, the 2019 effort, I would say is more impressive because it was versus Nadal. I, yeah, yeah, I think um, it was a bad, I mean, Novak was his dominant self in both matches. He was his brilliant, you know, efficient, amazing tactical surgeon in both. Um, 
For Nadal in that match, it was a bad day at the office. For Medvedev in this match, he's not even sure where the office is. He's in the post office. <laughs> post office? Or you mean, yeah, that, that's a great call because again, Nadal experienced in the clash of the, of the great players and Medvedev, Medvedev, like he reached his first slam final. It's like, hey, you guys didn't expect anything from me and look what I did at the US Open in, 20, in 2019. Now, oh, it's a second. And there's a lot of thought, like again, odds makers were thinking, hey, is he even favored and he's beaten Novak and can he win and all this kind of stuff. And then it's like, no, sorry, it's yeah. not happening. End of the story. All right. Well, uh, I didn't come up with a great question, but thanks guys for uh, doing, making, no, making good of it. All right. Well, yeah, uh, I liked it. Yeah. I okay. Liked it. Okay. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. Um, we'll, we will wrap it up there. Uh, that was great. A lot of fun reacting um, to, to that final, another display of greatness for Novak Djokovic, major number 18, Australian Open number nine. And that'll do it for this episode of three. Make sure to like the, the, the video and subscribe on YouTube. We are available on all your favorite podcast platforms. And we greatly appreciate it if you leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. We will see you next time on the next episode of three.